Good evening. This is Kim Nicolaitis. I'm with uh, Advent Christian Voices, and I'm here broadcasting live directly out of Honolulu on the 26th of March for our weekly broadcast here with True Life in Christ. And uh, today, since we're starting Holy Week, actually, we started yesterday, I thought a good topic would be to look at um, some of the things that were going on at that time. Palm Sunday, as you know, is a very auspicious occasion for Christians, and because we celebrate the time when Jesus first inaugurated uh, the kingdom of God here on earth up until, um, you know, up until that day, and he was sort of standing there on the, uh, the, the foot of the hill of Mount Olives there, Jesus went around during his earthly ministry preaching uh, to everybody to repent of their sins because uh, the kingdom of God was near. And on this day, Jesus officially announces that the kingdom of God has, in fact, arrived. It was here. It was now. None other than the person of uh, the King Jesus himself. So the traditional interpretation of the scriptural references to the advent of the Messiah, that he was coming to, you know, ride uh, on a donkey as he entered Jerusalem, were well known to the Jews. And uh, for years, that mode of travel was actually prohibited for any of the pilgrims. They would come every year, three times a year, in fact, to celebrate the major festivals. Required uh, the, the men to go. And once they reached that point in the city, descending from that hill into the city, the custom was that if they had, in fact, been riding uh, a donkey, uh, whether a mule or horse or whatever, they would always dismount and walk. So as not to give the impression that they were presuming upon themselves such an honor that was to be reserved for the Messiah alone. This comes from the prophecy in Zechariah, I believe. Behold, your king comes to you riding meekly on a donkey. And, you know, that custom was respected by all the Jews who came to any of those festivals annually, even if they were crippled, if they even if they had to crawl into Jerusalem, rather than violate that tradition, they would, that's what they would do. And one might wonder about the mindset of this particular tradition, you know, what was the significance of it? Um, I mean, you might suspect the Messiah, who after all was to be the great deliverer of Israel from all her foes, if anything, would show up riding a white Ara Arabian stallion the sword in his hand, as we see him in the book of, of Revelation. Well, uh, I think uh, the idea was like, for instance, if we were to think of uh, an election in our own country uh, for the president, and uh, after all the votes are counted and it was determined, you know, the, there was a, all the contenders, uh, there was just one that was in clear majority and he had gained the legitimate rightful authority to assume the office, the title, the position, and so forth. And having gone through all that process, you discover there are those who still want to contend for the results. So the remaining initial candidates who claim to have some prospects for the office, one rides into town on a convertible with a top down, waving to the crowns. The other shows up all hunkered down in a Abrams tank or something. Which one do you think recognizes the fact that his claim is legitimate? Well, how, how would the Jews have known that this day? And in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke uh, chapter 19, verse 44, I believe it is, uh, Jesus says, would that you have known this day, uh, the day of uh, your visitation, 
I think the translation goes, but now it is hidden from your side. You know, the question is, well, why, how could they possibly have known? And that is the question that was up for mind. And Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25, it says, no one knows the day or the hour when he will come. He's talking about his second advent there. He says that not even the, the angels or the sun knows the day or the hour. But when he's talking about the first advent, I believe uh, that's not necessarily the case because here he says, he seems to imply that it would have been possible if they really truly understood the scriptures when in fact the, he would arrive to inaugurate his kingdom. And uh, there's a reason why it was hidden and we're gonna look at that today, but we're also gonna look at why, how it would have been possible for them to have known not only the day, but even the very hour when he shows up there at the foot of the hill of Mount Olives to announce his coming kingdom. So I think the first uh, prophecy we want to look at is uh, found for us in the book of Daniel. Uh, in chapters two through seven, we learn of four world empires that would come into the power from the time of Daniel until the appearing of the Messiah. Uh, and we're not going to take time now to read them, but I'd encourage you to do so. If you haven't, those empires would begin with that of the Babylonians with a prophecy uh, that were written uh, sometime between 586 and 550 BC. And that was that empire was to be followed, as we know historically, but at the time, of course, this hadn't happened yet when it was written by Daniel, but that empire was to be followed by the Medes and Persians. Um, and that empire, the Medes and Persian Empire, lasted from about 439 or so to 330, I'm sorry, 539, possibly 549, to about 330 BC. And that empire, again, was followed by another world empire, beginning with the Greeks, uh, in the year 330 um, BC. The fourth and final empire mentioned in the prophecy before the appearance of the Messiah was that of Rome. We all know that Rome was the em empire, the world empire that came into being around, um, well, in the first century BC, in any case, in Judea. So we know that the Messiah could not have appeared prior to, according to that prophecy, uh, the first century uh, BC. But according to um, another prophecy in Daniel 9.26, we find that the Messiah is going to be cut off after he does appear, and the end is going to come like a flood and the temple would be, be destroyed, uh, which we know happened historically in 70 AD. So that was a time of great calamity for Israel in which their whole religious life was destroyed, which could adequately be described only as, a, as if it were by a flood, which is exactly what that, uh, that prophecy mentions to us. Well, that gives us a clear window, a little over 100 years or so, in which the Messiah was to appear. He, so if he is to come to us, as the scripture had predicted, sometime during the Fourth world empire of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as interpreted by Daniel, or before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So if we were to restrict our inquiry to that time frame alone, we'd have a very limited number of credible contenders who appeared during that time frame. I'm not saying that many didn't appear, in fact, during that time. However, in hindsight, I, I don't think there's anyone remaining in contention, aside, of course, from the one who truly is not only the rightful Messiah of Israel, but in fact, 
uh, the true and only Savior of the entire world. So it doesn't take too much skill to recognize from these biblical prophecies that Jesus was the only person who could reasonably be shown to qualify. However, in many instances, the Bible was written like a code book, and we find out in the New Testament it was necessary for these things to have been concealed prior to their eventual outcome. Why? Well, otherwise, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, if the leaders of Israel had actually recognized who Jesus was, they would never have killed him. And it was necessary for him to die. That was the reason he actually came into the world uh, in that manner, in order to atone for our sins. But now there's no longer any other reason for these things to be concealed because that's already been accomplished. So if anyone's truly interested, it will not take too much skill, I believe, to break the code in which the Bible was written in order to show that Jesus was, in fact, the only possible contender for the title of the Messiah. So let's look a little more carefully at this prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9. When Daniel was, he receives this an answer to his prayer for the deliverance of Israel. Daniel had been relying on a previous prophecy of Jeremiah, which stated that Israel was to remain in captivity for some 70 years in Babylon before they'd be allowed to return to Jerusalem. One could be sure when the exactly the Israelites were dragged off into captivity from about 605 to 586 BC. And the reason why they were taken into captivity for this period of time was because from the time in which the kingdom of Israel was established 490 years previously, they had failed to obey the requirement that the land be allowed to rest once every seven years to be allowed to uh, lie fallow, you might say. That's the, the land was supposed to enjoy a Sabbath rest from being cultivated once every seven years. It was to remain that way, not be cultivated for a year of rest. But the Israelites never obeyed that commandment. So over the period of 490 years, they first came into possession of the land. That would mean that there was a total of 70 years of rest, which the land had missed. So God was going to make up for that and allow the land to get its rest all at once. Now, in answer to Daniel's prayer for the release of the Israelites uh, from their captivity to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and temple. We find out that the uh, Israelites will be allowed to rebuild the city and the temple. However, their actual release from captivity will have to wait a few more years. So if we look at verse 25 of chapter 9 of Daniel, the answer which Daniel gets is that there will be seven sevens plus another 62 sevens from the time when the decree or the word went out is issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem before the Messiah will appear. Well, this is obviously intended to be written in the language of a cryptic code because we were never told what the units of time, we know it's a unit of time being referred to here, but we don't know whether it's seconds, days, weeks, years, months, or whatever. So we have to figure it out for ourselves. So what could they be? Let me propose that what they're referring to here is a period of time which I'm going to call the biblical year or the biblical code year. And what I mean by that is simply 12 months of 30 days each, which amounts to 360 days. So why do I say 
that a biblical code year is 360 days? Is it because it's a nice round number and I like to use round numbers? No. Is it because they're 360 degrees in a circle and a year represents the time it takes for the Earth to rotate around the sun, which would make a complete circle? No. The reason is because the number of days has a biblical precedent for referring to a prophetic year event in the biblical calendar of events from Genesis all the way up through Revelation. For instance, in Genesis 24, we see that the floodwaters of the Noahic deluge prevailed for a period of 150 days, which was also equivalent to a period of exactly five months. As the context makes clear is by verses 4 in chapter 8. And that means that each month had to have been 30 days long on average. And we can also look to the New Testament in Revelation 12, 11, 12, I'm sorry, 11, 2, and 13, 5. That a period of 42 months is mentioned, and this refers to the same period of time that is also mentioned in Revelation 12, 6. However, there it's said to be 1260 days, and therefore each of those 42 months had to average out to 30 days each. One biblical year, therefore, is comprised of 12 such biblical months that average out to 30 days each. This means that a biblical year must have 30, 360 days in it. Now, I may be wrong, but uh, I believe the actual number of days that it took for the Earth to complete a trip around the sun was originally 360 days precisely. And that's all it changed. It changed after Adam fell because at that time, God cursed the ground. And part of the consequences of that curse was that the Earth slowed down its speed, which increased the time it took to circle the Earth by roughly five and a quarter days. So if we were to assume that the unit or the period of time referred to in this prophecy is therefore a biblical year of 360 days, would now only begin to make a whole lot of sense. The text does not tell us what the actual unit is, so we're free to use whatever unit of time makes the most sense in the context. And if I were to tell you to go to the store and buy a dozen, you know, you might think a dozen eggs, a dozen bagels, whatever. Depends on the context. The time unit of a biblical code year is the only one that really makes sense here. And what does all this mean? It means that the actual amount of time that it took, referred to in this prophecy, can literally be determined. But before we can know when it actually points to, we first have to figure out when we to begin counting. And the prophecy says to begin counting from the time the decree was issued to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Now, the decree had not been issued at the time of Daniel uh, when he received this prophecy, so it had to come after that time. There are actually four times in the Bible when decrees were issued that this may be referring to. It could be the year 539, for instance, when Cyrus issued a decree which allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. It didn't say anything there, however, about rebuilding the city. And then later in 519 uh, BC, Darius also issued another decree to rebuild the temple. But it still didn't mention rebuilding the city in Jerusalem. Later again in 457 BC, Artaxerxes issued a second decree to restore the temple. It's still not mentioning uh, Jerusalem itself or restoring its walls. It wasn't, in fact, until the year 444 that Artaxerxes, at the behest of Nehemiah, um, finally issued a decree to go back and rebuild the city. 
of Jerusalem and restore its walls at the request. You can read, uh, read about that in uh, this second chapter of Nehemiah, where it says that it occurred in the month of Nisan. So not only we know the year it was 444 BC in the month of Nisan. Now, this isn't always the case, but normally whenever the rabbinic literature tells us, <coughs> traditionally, the Bible mentions a month, a specific event occurring in a month of its lunar year, it typically means the very first day on that month. So in order to determine when the Messiah is to appear according to this prophecy of Daniel, we simply need to add the amount of time specified and see where it takes us. The uh, time, you recall, is seven plus 62 sevens, or 69 times seven, which equals 483 biblical code years of 360 days. So you can go ahead, uh, if you want, and uh, put up. Okay, we got that there. Great. So we have 483 actual uh, biblical code years of 360 days east, and that amounts to 483 times 360, which equals 173,880 actual days. Well, if we wanted to figure out, you know, what year it's going to show up, what we have to then do is divide each of those days by 365 point two four two two and that's because one solar year or astronomical year is not exactly 365 it's or even 365 and a quarter days you may not know it, but every 125 years a day is lost because not too many people live that long anyways there is actually only 365 days five hours 48 minutes and 46 seconds in an actual astronomical year if you want to be precise about it and so you can see why, for accounting purposes, God chooses to use a biblical year of simply 365 days. In any case, when dividing the total number of days calculated by at, by, at 173,880 by 365.2422, we come up with 460, I'm sorry, 476 years, and that leaves a remainder of 24.9 days. So if we round it off to 476 years for now and add that to the decree being issued at 444 BC, we can arrive at the year 33 AD. And we can do that because there's actually no year zero when going from BC to AD in the time calendar, as there would be in a normal timeline. If there were ever such a time as year zero, we'd only actually get to the year 32, but because we go directly from 1 BC, 1 AD. So when we subtract 444 for, from 476, it only leaves us with 32 years, but we have to add that remaining additional year for the one missing between 1 AD and 1 BC. So we actually arrive at the year 33 AD, which is pretty good, I think, uh, in terms of eliminating other possibilities. There's only two potential dates that actually have ever been accepted for when Jesus was literally crucified. One was the year 30, but for biblical reasons, actually, I've always preferred the year 33. 
And that is precisely where this prophecy points us. However, I think we can do better because the Bible tells us that the decree issued by Artaxerxes II was done in the month of Nisan, as I mentioned. And uh, we can assume that since it was done in the month of Nisan, referred to as such without specifying what day of the month, the tradition has it being the first day. Now, the Jewish calendar is based on the moon because of the need to continually readjust the lunar calendar every two or three years by adding an extra month of the year. Thus, the month of Nisan remains in the spring instead of rotating through the entire year, as it would be the case with <coughs> the Islamic religion, which is also based on a lunar calendar. <coughs> and it's too timing, excuse me, it's too timing consuming rather here to try to trace the calendar back each year to show how it does in fact arrive at precisely which day and that's actually been done and i have it on good authority renowned jewish scholar uh who is a professor of jewish studies at moody bible institute by the name of dr michael rydelnik has actually already gone through all those calculations and made an intensive investigation of the chronologies and he's found that in the year 440 4 BC, the first day of Nisan fell on the fifth day of March that year. However, in the year 33 AD, the day Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, it was the tenth of Nisan, and that occurred in that particular year on the 30th day of March, which would make it exactly 476 astronomical years and 25 days after we said the decree was issued. Now, if you had a day calendar, for instance, where you tear off a page for every day you had, and that day calendar was a little bit more than one year. It was like 173,880 pages from the time that decree was issued, and you were tearing off a page each day. You would get down to the bottom page the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem and inaugurated the kingdom of God. Now, you remember, he wasn't crucified until the, later that week, the next Friday, which was the 14th day of Nisan, the celebration of the Passover, when the lamb was to be slaughtered. And uh, we could, if we wanted to make an estimate of the time in the morning that Jesus was scheduled to show up, if Artaxerxes didn't get around to issuing the decree until, say, 11 in the morning, then Jesus would be due precisely two hours and 24 minutes earlier at 8.40 since we only had an additional 24.9, not quite a full 25 days. But again, it would depend on what time the decree was issued. There's probably a tradition in that if you wanted to search it out. If it wasn't until 1 p.m., then Jesus would not be due until 10.40 a.m. to uh, precisely fulfill this prophecy. So there you have it. When Jesus said he wept over Jerusalem, if only you had known this very day the things that would have been brought that would have brought you peace but it was hidden from you from you and so now your house is left to you desolate he wasn't referring to himself the messiah the promised one he was in fact referring to himself well so what what if the bible was able to make such a stunningly accurate prediction of these events why should that concern us i believe that our faith should be placed in that which is reasonable to believe no one but god could possibly predict anything with such accuracy 500 plus years before the event to the very day 
So knowing this should serve to strengthen your faith in the Bible, that it is indeed the very word of God, and that the God of the Bible is indeed precisely who he says he is, the God of all creation. And not only that, this should also serve to strengthen our faith in the fact that Jesus is indeed who he says he is, the Messiah of Israel. And not only that, but the very Savior of the whole world. And this is, in fact, only one of dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the intimate intimate details in all the events surrounding the life of Christ. The statistical odds of, say, only eight such prophecies having any accuracy and pointing to one figure have actually been calculated to be more than no more, I should say, than one in 10 to the 23rd times. That's a number with uh, with 10 with 20 zero, uh, an exponent of uh, 23 zeros behind it. In other words, it's virtually impossible. It's inconceivable. There is no other Messiah. He is the only one. He is the only way. There can be no doubts about it. And thirdly, he's not only our only hope, our only Messiah, our only Savior, but he died for our sins, just as just for our sins, as the scripture says as well. Because if you look at the verse in Daniel, it says that he was cut off, but not for himself. He was killed for us. He made an end of transgression. He made an atonement for our sins. He brought in everlasting righteousness. So there's no other way for you or anyone else to ever be reconciled to God. Jesus said it plainly enough when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus went to the cross, he died on that cross for you and for me, for all of us who will only believe in him. Was that asking too much? All we have to do is believe in the one whom God sent, and all our sins are forgiven, washed away. We are cleansed forever in God's sight. We are his children, adopted into his family, dearly beloved, and given the very real hope of eternal life. And as we wait for that eventuality to transpire, in the meantime... We are given real life that is full of promise and meaning and purpose. So, if you have not received Christ as your Savior, I implore you by the mercies of God not to leave this room, wherever you are, until you do. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We're not given the promise of tomorrow. Putting it off only hardens our hearts. We cannot afford to treat lightly the most gracious invitation that will ever be extended to us. It was made possible only at the tremendous cost to none less than the very Son of God himself. So if you hear the voice of God's Spirit speaking to your heart, don't turn him away. I implore you, by the tender mercies of God, if you've already committed your life to Christ, I'd say this is a good time to re-examine your heart and ask how faithful you've been to that commitment. Being, as we are living in a fallen world, and as such, being continually subjected to temptations from within as well as without. Not live up quite to the standards or expectations we consider worthy of our calling as children of God. I hope this little demonstration of how faithful God is to his word and his promise will give you courage to trust him just a little bit more. Next time your faith may be challenged by the political correctness of whatever other hazards we may encounter in this fallen world, let us then keep a steadfast faith with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of that faith. He, after all, is the only one who is truly worthy of our interest and attention, and he will never let us down. So let us take this opportunity to once again recommit our lives to his service and glory with thanksgiving for such a wonderful Savior, for such a wonderful, faithful, and holy God, 
who is in absolute control of all of the creation he once spoke into being, and which is bringing, he is bringing to pass all that he promised in his perfect timing according to his perfect plan. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we adore you. We're so privileged to be called your children. We thank you for giving us your word and the grace to believe in you and trust you. Oh, for that grace to trust you even more, we pray. Help us, O oh Lord, to commit our hearts and minds to your service, your glory, and your honor, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Well, this is Kim Nicolaitis signing off. Uh, with Advent Christian voices into another week. See you then. Adios.